Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Taipei 1980. On the evening of March 31st, 1980, at around 8 p.m., Wang Huimin is in a downtown Taipei office. A radio is on in the background, playing a news bulletin. It's a piece about a department store worker who solves crimes, way more interesting than the usual fare. She writes everything down. This may seem like a strange thing to do, but this wasn't everyday news. Each stack of paper is marked top secret, with instructions inside telling you to burn everything if necessary. The broadcast, aimed at Taiwan, was coming from the other side, communist China. Ms. Wang was part of a secret government project to listen into these broadcasts. Taiwan was still under martial law, so this was not the kind of station most people would have dared to tune into. We know all of this because there's a typewritten transcript of her notes sitting right in front of me. Her surname is in the margins. It comes from the yellowing stacks of these reports that now sit in RTI's library. Ms. Wang has graciously stepped out of retirement for an afternoon to tell us more about her career as a secret listener. She says she entered RTI's predecessor in 1972. She already had experience as a typist in a publishing company, and her father was already working here. Her father told her to forget everything she'd done at the end of each day and to tell anyone who asked that she was a typist. After all, that's what she was. One big question that comes out straight away is how people would type Chinese anyway. Ms. Wang describes how it was done. They used a sort of printing press. You'd pick everything out, arrange it on a grid, and roll the paper on top. Luckily for them, the broadcasts were tediously predictable. To make things easier, they'd have common words like Marxism and proletariat ready to go in advance. Of course, there could not be any mistakes. And Ms. Wang recalls that this could be a problem. It was all fine if a newsreader was speaking. They had carefully manicured radio accents. But many officials speaking on the radio never managed to shake off their local accents. And Ms. Wang recalls that this made trying to copy down what they said a nightmare. Fortunately, the station staff had fled to Taiwan from all parts of China. So, when a communist official said something that wasn't quite clear, they could count on having someone from nearby to help answer their questions. What did the average Taiwanese think about the mainland at this time? You certainly couldn't go there. Ms. Wang says there was no knowledge about the place at all. Even children of mainlanders like herself were told that they were so poor over there that they had to eat rubber. Of course, she laughs. We now know the mainlanders said the same thing about us that we had to eat banana peels to survive. But she adds, if we had to eat banana peels, where did all the bananas go? What did Ms. Wang make of the broadcasts? Did she end up having a favorite announcer or segment? No. She says every broadcast was the same. 
forgettable and boring. The only change came during the 90s, when announcers dropped the shrill and barking style they had used and shifted to smooth tones. They also added music shows. She also remembers being amused at a program bragging that all the farmers at a local farm had electric lighting. She remembers thinking, we already have TVs and refrigerators, and they're still bragging about lights? But changes were coming to both sides. On older copy like this stack here, Every single article starts with the same character, Fei, or bandits. The bandits were the communists, of course. The mainland was the bandit area, and the broadcasts Ms. Wang listened to came from the bandit station. The change to more neutral terms, like Chinese communists and the mainland, came later on in her career. I want to hear more about what an average day was like for her. I show her the same page we started with. <laughs> That's my work, she says, flipping through the pages. She says that after her unit was shut down, one new head manager took the instructions written on the papers literally and had most of them burned. Though she never connected with any of the stories she wrote down, knowing that decades of your work have gone up in actual smoke is definitely not a good feeling. Only a small number of these stacks remain many of them preserved by one co-worker who smuggled them home. With her work now back in front of her, I ask her if they were listening out for something in particular, a code word perhaps. No, she says, there wasn't anything like that, though the authorities did make sure that the first copy of everything they did was sent directly to the president. In other words, though their activities were secret, they weren't living James Bond lifestyles. Quite the opposite, I discover, when I ask her if it was a happy time. She says yes. She had a stable income. She'd been doing typing anyway. And though her previous job, working with translated pieces, could be more interesting, the job she did here was easy, and with six-hour working days too. She says that women filled as many important jobs as men did. And then she stops. There are two names the ones who signed off on this stack. They are two managers who aren't alive anymore. She had been the youngest when she joined, she says. They were a tight-knit group of mainland exiles. Her father introduced everyone as her aunts and uncles. She says there was never any rule that prevented local Taiwanese from taking a job there, but the fact was that almost all of them were mainlanders until years later. I think this mainland background makes the answer to her next question very interesting. During works from the Cold War era, you often read slogans about smashing the communists and retaking the mainland. I ask if people really believed that that would happen one day. Whether local Taiwanese had any interest in this is another question. But in exiled families like hers at least, there was no doubt about it. She says that her father's generation really thought this way, and she even remembers one station vice president about her father's age exhorting employees to work hard and prepare to take back their homes. She was born in Taiwan and had plenty of brothers and sisters here, so those kind of attachments and that kind of thinking don't seem to have lasted beyond the first generation. As she's already said, the mainland was closed off and mysterious to them, but for her parents, it was a home they always wanted to go back to. We 
People who had fled to Taiwan like that came with a lot of heartbreak. And it was propaganda gold. Ms. Wang remembers listening to one program where letters from relatives back in China were read on air. One day, a sweet-voiced announcer came on the air reading out yet another name and address. But this time, work in the office stopped. It was the elder sister of the typist sitting next to her, writing to ask how she was doing, if she'd gotten married or had kids. The typist broke down. They longed to go back. But hearing Ms. Wang describe it, it sounds as though their hometowns became increasingly imaginary places. In the late 1980s, she thinks it was, news came out that the ban was lifted and people could start going back to the mainland to visit relatives. Ms. Wang's parents rushed to pack their bags. She says they came back to Taiwan very disillusioned. After around 40 years, the place they had known was gone. In the mid-1990s, Ms. Wang's unit was shut down and she was moved elsewhere. Her recollections of the late martial law years are definitely at odds with those of many others from outside the establishment, who remember this period as a much darker time. But we have to remember that this is history as she lived it. What she's given us is a very personal look at how a group of people went about their lives, while putting a human face on a secret project that went all the way to the very top. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me next week for another journey through time.